Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the most exciting half hour of science that you have ever heard today. My name is Chris and today I have a story about missing stars and missing planets. Mm. Possible... Where'd they go? Well, we'll find, try and find out. We'll try and figure it out. No, but it's, it's like possible stars and planets that used to be part of our solar system or could be part of our solar system that we don't know about. Ah, oh, yeah. they didn't just fall behind the washing machine? Uh, unless you've got an enormous washing machine, <laughs> I think that is unlikely. Um, Manisha, what do you got for us? This week I'm actually talking about some cool research that has been, um, just been published on memories that trigger anxiety and post-traumatic stress events and how they can be changed to reduce the extent of these events. So there's some cool research that's come out of um, Columbia Health and McGill University and they're just looking at these neurological pathways and it should be really cool. Fantastic. And Stu, I believe, has an interview with Renéu Joannes Boyo, uh, who is a paleontologist, I'm going to say, or archaeologist, who has uh, is talking about the discovery of early human fossils in Morocco that are earlier than expected and change our Ooh. view of human evolution. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Yes. I love a um, paleontology story. Me too. Big, literally groundbreaking research there. <laughs> On with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am talking about the lost planets and stars of our solar system. This is a couple of... This is literally lost in science. This is lost in (laughs) science, lost in space. (laughs) Now, um, first of all, let me just say, long-time listeners may remember a couple of years ago, there was talk of a ninth planet to our solar system in the outer solar system. No, I don't mean Pluto. (laughs) We're talking... You love it when we talk about Pluto, don't you? I love Pluto. We're talking... We're talking about a real planet, Manisha, a proper planet, a large planet. Um, now, because Pluto is considered a dwarf planet, then there are quite a few dwarf planets, like Pluto out in the outer solar system. Now, the planet nine, though, the one we're talking about, that was hypothesized because it, and that came about when they were looking at the orbits of some of these outer dwarf planets, these what they call large orbit objects. Um, these are dwarf planets or objects that have orbits about 250 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So the distance to the Earth to the Sun called an astronomical unit. So it's about 250 astronomical units out. Uh, and it's over eight times the orbit of Neptune, which is the currently known outermost proper planet. Now, in, in 2014, six of these large, obje- ob- large orbit objects were observed to be arranged in two groups. So two of them, including the dwarf planet Sedna, they had their orbits aligned in one group, while four of them had their orbits aligned in the other group. And the explanation for this orbital alignment was that there is another large planet that is kind of shepherding them into these groups. So its its gravity is kind of 
affecting their orbits and making them align themselves into these groups. Cool. Mm. Are those are the planets that group in those different groups? Do you know if they're like if there's other qualities that make them group? Like, are they of similar mass or of similar? Uh, well, we'll gas. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we're talking about, I guess, they probably would have similar composition because mm. everything kind of out that way. Until you go there, you can't really be certain, oh, yeah, I guess. Um, like when we, the probe went to Pluto, the New Horizon probe went to Pluto, we've learned a lot about it that we didn't know and didn't expect. Um, they're probably all similar-ish size because they need to be big enough for us to be able to see them. Yep. Is one of the things. So, yeah, they, they've got a lot of similarities, but it's hard to know until we actually go there. Um, some of them are really weird. Um, but but the thing is that they're the only ones we know about. Now, since then, there have been four more of these objects observed by the Outer Solar System Origin Survey, or OSOS, mm-hmm. um, and their results, well, they don't really contradict the the clustering of these, these objects, but they pointed out there is a possible bias in the data and essentially saying that due to the weather conditions where they look at these these objects, it is easy to see them in some parts of the sky than others. And so the claim that, you know, if you kind of allow for this, the fact that we're only seeing them, we're seeing them aligned in one place because that's where we're looking, essentially. And the same, if you adjust for that, then the clustering and the orbital alignment goes away. Now, so they're basically saying that if, that's, if there is no kind of orbital alignment, then there is no evidence for this ninth planet. Now, this is in no way a definitive thing. Um, you know, this is just a suggestion. It doesn't really disprove Planet Nine. Um, the best way to prove Planet Nine exists, obviously, would be to find it. But it could be that could take us a long time because it could be very, very far away. It might take us a long time to spot it with a really big telescope. Um, so, yeah, look, basically, just until then, we collect this kind of data on all the objects we can find and see if there is this gravitational effect. Um, you know, so you never know what will happen. This isn't the first time there have been a hypothesized planet that didn't turn out to be real. Um, you may have heard of the planet Vulcan. No, I don't mean Star Trek. <laughs> all right, all right. Have you heard of the planet Vulcan? Uh, only through Star Trek. No, there was used to be a hypothesized planet Vulcan. And this was like a planet that was supposed to be close to the sun, like in between Mercury. You know, oh. closer than than um than Mercury, and I it was have the heard of this. yeah. And they they said it thought it was there to explain some oddities in the orbit of Mercury. Now it turned out that Vulcan didn't exist. Instead, it was basically a problem with gravity. It was Einstein's general theory of relativity modified? It was a problem gravity. with gravity. It was a problem oh, wow. with gravity. Yeah. So they stopped looking for this this um yeah. This, they stopped this looking for um the Vulcans. Yeah. 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 So then it was free for Star Trek to use that yeah. name. <laughs> yeah. So um look. You never know what you'll find. I mean, it could be there's all kinds of weird things. It's a big universe out there, what I'm saying. Uh, but speaking of finding strange things, <laughs> there has been another recent paper which suggests that the sun may actually have a twin star. There might be cool. a, a missing twin star Hang for on. our sun. When you say a twin star, do you mean like, what do you, what do you mean? What, what do you think I mean? Well, when I think of twins, I think, you know, um, uh, maybe they look exactly the same, um, have the same amount of planets orbiting them, um, maybe in the same general vicinity in the in the galaxy. I'm talking identical twins. Well, not identical. I said. What? Not- so they were they were born at the same time. Yeah. So okay. Um, there's a recent paper that suggests basically. Okay, what they're saying is when we look at other stars in the galaxy, many of them we see are binaries. So there'll be two stars orbiting together, right? Now, there's some American astronomers, they've done some mathematical modelling on how star formation, and they think that nearly all stars have a twin somewhere. So what they're suggesting is they're looking at the kind of the clouds of gas and dust where we believe that stars form. These are called dense cores. They're really hard to see inside because they're dense. (laughs) 
Um, but they tend to be kind of elongated and a bit egg-shaped. And so what they're suggesting is that as they compress under gravity, um, there are two points where they are densest, not one, <laughs> and that you get two stars formed, right? Um, now, these stars are often a long way apart. They're not like right really close next to each other. They're often about, say, 500 astronomical units. Remember, an astronomical unit is distant from the... Uh, That's big. Yeah, the Earth to the Sun. Uh, or 17 times the orbit of Neptune, if you're still counting planets. Um, so they're about twice as far as those large orbit objects I was talking about before. Um, so about 40% of the time, these twin stars will... Did I do that wrong? Should I start again? About 40% of the time, these stars will actually move close together and become what you call a tight binary. Oh, um, yeah. I'm yep. making motions with my hands, showing them orbiting <laughs> each other. Yeah, mate. Um, but 60%, the other 60% of the time, they drift apart. Uh, and in the sun's case, that would have happened billions of years ago. So the twin would now just be just another star wandering <gasps> somewhere among the 100 billion others in our cool. galaxy. So and the chance of finding it yeah, is really, really small. Or of it coming back to destroy. Some people think there's going to be another star that's going to come back to destroy. Well, I that's mean, unlikely to happen the either. twin theory would suggest that there's one good and one evil yeah, well, star out there. So do we have the good star? I hope we've got the good one. I I don't think all twins are evil and good. I think there's some think of them would beg so. to differ. According to the Simpsons twin theory. Yep. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So yeah, that is those are the the big discoveries. Um, possible missing stars and planets. Um, I'll just throw in one other little interesting snippet I saw in some recent research. Um, this is the theory that the Earth may once have been a donut. <laughs> so there's this hypothesized object called a synestia, which is basically when planets form. They're, they go through a phase of just being a ring of kind of rocky, yeah, dusty right. material, like a donut. Uh, and eventually that's kind of blown away and you end up with the core of the planet in the middle. But, really? You know, so these people are suggesting that the Earth, they once have been in these... It only lasts for wait, a, wait, 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 a wait, few wait. million yeah, years. Yeah, but, but, but it was a donut made up of like particulate mat, like yeah. matter. Oh, okay. It wasn't yeah. actually a solid, no, no, no. you know, cinnamon no, 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 and no. sugar. No, 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 no. You wouldn't be able to walk <laughs> on the donut, donut no. Was it? But now they're looking for these synestias or space donuts. Cinnamon. In cinnamonestias, <laughs> in other stars to see if they can they actually mm. exist. It's an interesting Sounds idea. Sounds delicious. Earth may have been a donut. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock. And you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. suffer from mental health issues such as anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorders, PTSD, um, they often have what is referred to as a flashback or where memories of the traumatic um, or stressful period are recalled due to some sort of trigger. These triggers can be anything. They can be sights, they can be sounds, they can be smells or even feelings. Any sort of sensory Yeah. Input. So. And, and they're not necessarily um, completely linked to um, the stress event. Um, basically, 
um, people that suffer panic attacks may be triggered by going to um, a similar place or um, dealing with similar people or a similar situation. So it doesn't have to be necessarily the exact same event, but something close enough to. Um, the idea is that there's something that we remember or some sort of memory that brings us back to this place of anxiety, stress, and trauma. And these flashbacks can elicit extreme emotional and physical reactions and can often be pretty debilitating. And so you can imagine that it'd be really useful to understand these triggers and how to control the flashbacks or responses to the flashbacks for the people who suffer from these disorders and so that they can um, better manage their lives. And so my story today is um, it's on a study that's been uh, recently published in Current Biology uh, by researchers at Columbia University Medical Center and McGill University, so from the states in Canada. And in their paper, John Wen Hu and his colleagues suggest that they found a way to control the way um, memories are triggered, or sorry, um, they found a way to control memories that may trigger anxiety and PTSD events. Their research has to do with the way that memories are stored and um, strengthened in our brains and the types of memories we store. Basically, when a, um, a traumatic event happens, we gather and store information from that event. Um, some of the, um, the information is really important. Um, it's associative and it helps us stay informed and make better decisions for the future. So, for example, if you walk down a, a dark alley and you get mugged, an, the associative memory could be a, an association to the dark alley. So, in, so you avoid dark alleys? Exactly. So in the future, for a similar situation, you probably would avoid that dark alley and choose not to go down it. Or the smell of garbage. Uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But that may not be that may not be um, that may not be an, a good good trigger because you could smell garbage when there's no danger. Yeah. Right. So the uh, the associative memories are actually those memories that we want to keep. They're okay. they're the parts of the they're right. parts of the our experiences that we want to oh, keep. Okay. Yeah. That inform us in the future, so we yeah. can make good decisions. Um, the problem is when you do experience these um, these stressful situations, such something like being mugged our brains then also store these non-associative memories. So something like the smell of garbage or um, mm. something that's associated to, the, sti uh, to the, um, the event that just sticks, but there's no, there's no specific reason. It's not yeah. actually about that event. Yep. Um, the authors gave the example that maybe uh, while you're being mugged, you spotted a mailbox or you spotted the red of a mailbox type thing. Um, and then basically the, that image or the site could be um, encoded into your brain as a non-associative memory for this event and in the future you just become really nervous or anxious when something is related to that so even if you have to send post or things like that you start to feel quite anxious with it and would they necessarily understand why they're feeling anxious from the red no not okay. necessarily sometimes i i've read in other um situations that people um they can be triggered and then the trigger also makes them recall a memory and so maybe sometimes that sort of a, the flashback is quite a literal flashback so they 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 see or imagine um, a stressful event again but sometimes I can imagine that like with a lot of anxiety disorders at least sometimes you're just anxious and you can't place why you don't know what's going on and you don't know how come you're anxious so it could just be a random thing that people don't know why this weird situation is making them anxious. Like maybe going to the post office and all of a sudden you're anxious when you never were before mm. and you don't know why. 
Um, so now, what the, um, what the authors tried to do in the study was eliminate these non-associative memories, um, which don't provide any helpful information or any um, information to help us make decisions. And instead, um, they just compromise our future, sorry, our future performance. Um, and they wanted to eliminate the non-associative memories, but also preserve the associative yeah, memories. The so important ones. Exactly. So you don't mm. want to be going through those same situations in the future. So um, in the example, they want to, uh, in the example that the authors provided, they want to remove the anxiety associated to the mailbox, but they want to keep the... Um, the dark alley. The dark alley, yeah. exactly. Avoid the dark alley. Exactly. Um, now, the way that we make and store memories has to do with the strength of the synaptic connections between the neurons in our brains. Mm. This is true for associative and non-associative memories. The stronger the connections, the longer the memories are stored, and the stronger the memories are. Now, in the new study, Jian Wen Hu and colleagues, tr um, they tested this theory in marine snails. They, they, uh, they tested this theory in marine snails. They studied two sensory neurons connected to one motor neuron. And in the most simplistic way, a sensory neuron, it, it translates environmental information into information that our brain will use. And motor neurons are the ones that send the, a signal to our body to perform some sort of an action. In the snails, they tested two sensory neurons connected to one motor neuron. And one sensory neuron was uh, stimulated by, uh, stimulated to induce an associative memory and the other sensory neuron was stimulated to induce a non-associative memory. And they found that although the strength of the connections were maintained by the same protein, each memory was actually maintained by a different form of that same protein. So stimulation of both of the sensory neurons elicited the production and release of protein kinase molecules, but associative memories, the good memories, um, used protein kinase molecule 3, while non-associative memories used protein kinase molecule 1. And so even when I was reading this, I didn't understand why that would be important or what the difference is. But what it all kind of boils down to is that since there's a difference in this type of molecule that's um, being released and being used in these different pathways, you can then um, target treatment or target drugs to um, inactivate the molecule forms while leaving the other ones, the, the good ones, intact. So we can target the um, protein kinase molecule 1 while keeping protein kinase molecule 3 intact. This way, in theory, you can um, remove or reduce the strength of the non-associative um, memories and keep the associative memories. Now, you may be thinking that this is all well and good for marine, sa marine snails. Yeah. But um, the reason that these snails are used in such experiments is because, there's, uh, because their protein kinase molecule pro um, are actually uh, quite similar to our, our own. And so the authors reckon that this research may, be, may one day translate to drugs that can be helped to um, modify the types of memories that people keep in store and um, that are associated to traumatic events. The next steps in, um, in this research is for further study on protein kinase molecules and what contribute to their production and locali localizations at the synapses. Um, once the researchers know this, so they, they need to understand the protein kinase better and how the protein kinase is formed and behaves, they'll be able to figure out what type of drugs they need um, to weaken, um, weaken their, their role in non-associated memories.
up until fairly recently, it was assumed that the human species, Homo sapiens, evolved in a very particular part of Africa around about 250,000 years ago or thereabout. But more recently, some fossils have been unearthed and other materials that have put doubt on the specific location of the origin of Homo sapiens and also on the date. So I've got Dr. Reno Johans Boyol on the phone from New York City. Uh, thanks for joining us, Reno. Thank you for having me. The previously understood origin of the human species was in a specific part of Africa. Where was that location? What you have to understand is we have very few fossils. So every time we have a fossil, we basically understand much more of it. Um, so those fossils previously discovered were from the East Africa. So it was Homo kibish uh, mainly, which was dated from 195,000 years ago. And because of that, we saw that um, we had a first Homo sapiens appearing in East Africa and then expanding from that. Uh, <clears throat> and you probably heard of the you know, East Africa and, and, and expansion into uh, the rest of the world uh, theory. Uh, but because of that, we see that um, we have now much more fossils uh, than previously thought, and then older one in, in Morocco, so elsewhere in Africa, which changes completely the view that we had before. What were they looking for in, in Morocco, and what did they find? So, well, basically what um, we knew about those fossils from 1960s, so they, uh, they had already excavated some fossil then, but it was... Um, in condition that we had no record where it was in the stratigraphy. So based only on the uh, anatomy of, the, of those fossils at the time, <clears throat> basically we were expecting the age to be much younger. Uh, it, it was even believed that the, the fossil could be younger than 60,000 years old. Uh, but they did more excavation and found new stratigraphic layers that were unexcavated where other fossils were uh, in the ground. And so they could see exactly the stratigraphy and we could actually do proper dating then to assess the age. And then the age came back to 300,000. So we realized that anatomically they were very modern, but they were very old as well. So it completely changed uh, the aspect of the evolution of Homo sapiens. So what does this mean for our understanding of, of where humans came from? I mean, the idea that they started off in a very small locality and then spread out from there. Does this suggest that perhaps they were more widespread a lot earlier than we thought? Yeah, so it, it, it gives us two, two, two things. First, um, we see that some uh, anatomical features are already present there at 300,000 years uh, and some others are not. So like, it, it's, it's a very complex evolution anatomically as well. Uh, but also we see that we have fossils that are very um, early Homo sapiens, but that have the same feature as us at 300,000. Then in South Africa, we have some that also have the same features and are probably dated around 250, but the, the, the dating is also very hard on that side because we're missing a lot of uh, uh, pieces. But basically what we see is that in Africa, we have a, a, a lot of different Homo sapiens that have the same features at different times, but everywhere in Africa, which means that Homo sapiens appeared somewhere and then expanded quite, uh, quite widely, broadly in Africa before you know, going out of Africa. So it's a very different aspect. Uh, uh, it's not just one point. It's more like spreadly, uh, spread everywhere in Africa and then evolved there. 
for a long time before he went out. So they possibly filled up Africa with humans before having to find somewhere else to live, maybe? It looks that way. It looks that way, definitely. Has anyone found any um, fossils of that early outside of Africa at this point? Because, you know, it seems like the, uh, the geographic area keeps expanding with each discovery. Has anyone found anything beyond Africa that that's of the same era as these fossils from Morocco? Well, the, it, it, it always depends on the way you want to look at it. Uh, it, it might be uh, Homo sapiens, early Homo sapiens uh, outside of Africa. We haven't found it yet, but it's possible. Uh, we have to understand that <clears throat> uh, Homo Neanderthalensis, so Neanderthal, is already in Europe uh, by different, different branch, but basically already arrived in Europe. And then we also have, uh, the, uh, I also dated recently a, a fossil that is not a direct ancestor of us, is Homo naledi, that was in South Africa, that is retained some very archaic features, but was dated to 250,000 years. So it's uh, basically lived at the same time than Homo sapiens. So there's all these different branches of closely related uh, hominins coexisting. That's right, that's right, that's right. And Homo sapiens and Neanderthal and also Denisovans, which is up in the north like Siberia and China and all that, we basically crossbred with them again. Uh, Naledi, we never, uh, it was too, too far in our evolutionary branch. But now we kind of see that it's a much more complex uh, evolution uh, that what what was sought and 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 of course you know everybody remembers this monkey um, slowly morphing into ape an ape like and then into modern human you know like this very um, symbolic uh, evolution uh, and, and of course this is this is completely untrue but it's with the new discovery we can also understand it's much more. Uh, complicated with side branch going and then evolving and staying for a very long time, even with archaic feature and, and overlapping with other uh, species. It's, it's a much more complex system. I guess it just goes to show that the uh, the fossil record is, is far from uh, a complete picture at any given time and uh, every new discovery sort of increases our understanding by a great deal. That's correct, yes. It, it's, it's basically understanding a picture. Like, it's like if you do a puzzle and, and you only have 10 pieces for a puzzle that is 500 pieces. Of course, the image that you try to understand is very complex uh, to figure it out. And, and the more pieces you get, the closer you get to the true image of the puzzle. And we obviously lacking enough fossil to completely understand, but we're getting there slowly. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad there's a lot of people working on the puzzle. It's really interesting to, to hear the, um, you know, that this research is ongoing and we're still finding out new things. Um, I'd like to thank you, Renaud, for joining us on Lost in Science to, uh, to talk a bit about your, uh, your, your discoveries and, and the research you've been working on. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. And that was Renaud Johans Boyol, uh, who's actually a researcher from the Southern Cross University in Australia, but who has been working in Morocco, uh, finding new human ancestor fossils, and talked to us on the line from New York City.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.